The Bible reading is from 1 Kings 11, verses 1 to 13. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely, as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Gemesh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Malek, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives, who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear down the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. When the White Star Line's newest ship set sail on its maiden voyage from Southampton in April 1912, it attracted huge attention. This was the largest and the most impressive ship in their fleet. They called it unsinkable, and by the look of it, no one was arguing. But what made it unsinkable was that it had, a, it had 16 compartments in the base of the ship that each of them could be closed off. So if they were to, say, hit an iceberg, they could close off the other compartments to make sure that the boat didn't sink. No one was expecting an iceberg of that size. No one was expecting that five of those watertight compartments would be ripped open. If only four had been ripped open, the ship would have stayed afloat. As they set out from Southampton to New York, confidence was high, everything looked great. But the unsinkable ship was torn in two and lying on the bottom of the ocean. And more than 1,500 people were dead. This morning we're looking at the sinking of the kingdom of Israel. And it wasn't an iceberg that sank Israel, it was something a little more subtle than that. But like the Titanic, Israel will be ripped in two 
literally torn into two parts, two kingdoms. And those same questions, how could it happen? How could this unshakable kingdom of God be torn apart? How could something so solid be divided? Well, last week we saw briefly that King David came to the throne. He was the greatest of the kings of Israel, the best king that Israel would ever have, the benchmark that every other king had to measure up to, which is pretty remarkable, isn't it, when you think about that whole thing with Bathsheba and killing Uriah? He was the best king that they ever had. But the promises that God made to his people through Abraham, those promises are fulfilled under the kingship of David. He promised them a people, well, they've become a great nation and they have a king ruling over them. He promised them land and under David's leadership, they've finally taken possession of all of the land that God said he would give them. And he promised them blessing. Everything that they enjoy now in this kingdom where David rules is because God has blessed them. They're living with a faithful king on their throne. And things are looking good. What God had planned from the very beginning, his purpose is now being fulfilled. To have his people living in his place and under his rule and blessing. That's the plan. That was the plan in the Garden of Eden and, it, and, and the plan has not changed. The kingdom that God has established, it seems to be unshakable. What could possibly go wrong? Well, David's reign comes to an end and he passes the throne on to Solomon. Now, if David's reign had been a good one, then Solomon starts his reign in a spectacular way. God spoke to Solomon and he made him an unusual offer. This is what God said. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream and God said, ask whatever you want me to give you. Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Incredible offer, isn't it? He's just become the king of God's people, Israel, and God's saying, anything you want, name it, it's yours. What would you have asked for in that situation? I can't help but think that I would have been asking for something selfish, like, do you reckon you could sort out my home loan for me or, or perhaps put a million dollars into the bank? I mean, they'd be the kind of things that would probably be going through my head. If you're old enough, you might remember the Tim Tam ad where uh, the genie appears to, and, and uh, fun fact, that's actually Kate Blanchett who was in that ad. That was one of her first acting roles, a Tim Tam ad. Uh, but she was, uh, the genie appears and what do they ask for? That her and her boy are, are, are there with the genie and, and she says, a packet of Tim Tams that never runs out. And then they get that, so they start enjoying the Tim Tams and the genie looks at the guy and says, what else would you like? You have two more wishes. And he said, we'll have two more of those, thanks. Two more packets of Tim Tams that don't run out. Well, God's made this extraordinary offer to Solomon. Ask for whatever you want and it's yours. And Solomon's response is also pretty remarkable and incredibly unselfish. This is what Solomon says. Now, Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in the place of my father, David, but I am only a child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern the people 
and to distinguish between, between right and wrong, for who is able to govern this great people of yours? I mean, he couldn't have asked for anything better, could he? He wants to be a faithful leader of God's people and he knows that he's not going to be able to do it on his own. And he knows that they aren't his people, that they're God's people. He could have asked for anything. And what he asks for is wisdom and discernment to be the best possible king that he can be. But Solomon's not only famous for his wisdom, One of the great achievements of King Solomon was that he was the one who built the temple in Israel. He was the one who built this building that would remain in Jerusalem as the focal point for the people of Israel, for them to remember that their God is the God who brought them into this land, that their God is the God who rules over all things. The temple was the symbol of God's presence with his people. They knew that he didn't really live there, that it's just a building built by men. But this was the symbol that God was with them right there amongst them. This is what it looked like on the wharf at uh, Southampton when the boat set out from in 1912. The band was playing, crowds were gathered, waving off family and friends, more than 2,000 people aboard the boat. I mean, you can feel the excitement there, can't you? But what you couldn't imagine were what was was in store, that in just a few hours, the Titanic would sink. And I'm sure that there was that same confidence in Israel when Solomon came to the throne. They have a godly, wise king on the throne. The temple has been built. The symbol of God's presence is right there among them. The kingdom is stable, secure, and prosperous. What could possibly go wrong? Well, to get the answer to that question, you actually need to go right back to the book of Deuteronomy. See, God knew that they would need a king when they moved into the land, and he was adamant that they wouldn't have a king just like all the other kings around them, that the king over God's people, the king in Israel, was to be different to the other kings. This is what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 17, where God is talking to them about having a king. When you enter the land your Lord, the Lord your God is giving you, and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all of the other nations, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. No problem so far. David was God's choice of a king, so he was appointed. Now, Solomon has clearly been blessed by God to be the king, but this is what we read next. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has said to you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of money. Three things that every other king around them would have done and God says, your king is not to do that. He's not to accumulate massive amounts of money. He's not to get imported horses from Egypt. That's kind of like imported cars today, getting the Aston Martin or the, or the, uh, the Ferrari. And the king is also not to marry a large number of wives. Back then, that was a measure of your significance, how many wives you had. 
And it was a way of making treaties with the other countries around you. And the kings of all of the other nations surrounding them would have done exactly that. But the king over God's people was to be different. And this is where it all goes wrong for Solomon. I mean, it's only those three things that God asks for the king. Don't accumulate money, don't go importing horses and don't marry a whole stack of women. And then in 1 Kings chapter 10, this is what we read. This is just one of the examples. If you read through the whole story, it's like the decline of King Solomon. The weight of gold that Solomon received yearly, this is kind of by way of taxes, was 666 talents. Now, some of you might be old enough to remember talents. No? No, no, maybe not. A talent was a particular weight of gold. And by today's standard, if you had that amount of gold today, it would be just a smidge over a billion dollars that you would have in gold. Uh, They reckon that gold probably hasn't changed in real terms, hasn't changed in price since King Solomon's day. So it's about a billion dollars that he's getting every year. Then it goes on to say this. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots with 12,000 horses, which he kept with the chariots and also with him in Jerusalem. And then a little further on it says, Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt. But worst of all is when you turn to 1 Kings chapter 11 from the passage that we had read this morning. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women beside Pharaoh's daughter. They were from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth, 300 concubines. These wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as, as the heart of David his father had been. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. Solomon not only had an enormous number of wives, that would have been to make alliances with the countries around them, to try and sort out your own security issues rather than trusting God, But don't misunderstand, it's not that God's racist or he's got some problem with foreign wives. Most of the major leaders in the pages of the Old Testament are married to foreign wives. God has no problem with foreign wives. It's the people who are going to lead your heart away from God. That's where God has an issue. And that's exactly what happened. Because his wives worshipped a whole range of different gods, Solomon ends up setting up shrines for those gods. And he himself ends up worshipping those gods. It's hard to believe that the king who has shown so much promise could actually fail so spectacularly. One of the parts of parenting that's kind of probably one of the hardest things is helping your kids recognise that their choices have consequences, that their actions will have consequences. It can be a very hard lesson to learn. Sometimes the only way the kids are going to learn that the oven is hot is by touching it and and having to live with those consequences. You can tell them repeatedly that they're not to touch it, that the oven's going to get very hot while we're cooking, so please don't touch it. But it's often 
not until they burn themselves that they learn that lesson. Actions have consequences. And Solomon is about to learn that his actions have consequences. He knew the warnings. He knew exactly what God's word had said. He knew how he was supposed to live as the king over God's people. But power and money, they've gone to Solomon's head. And the sad thing is, Solomon's actions won't just have consequences for him, they'll have consequences for the whole of Israel. It'll be the whole kingdom that will suffer because of his disobedience and because of his pride. Solomon's actions have serious consequences. The kingdom over which he ruled will be divided. Not in his lifetime. God says, as a favour to your father, you can keep it together. But after you're gone, this kingdom will be torn into never to be reunited. It'll be Israel and Judah. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Two parts that will never be put together. So what do we learn from the story of Solomon? Let me give you two things that I think stand out pretty clearly. First one is this. I think one of the incredible things in this story is how easily Solomon drifts away from God and ends up worshipping other gods. The story of Solomon opens on such a positive note. I mean, he seems to be such a godly king But in a very short space of time, just a matter of a few years, he's gone completely and utterly off the rails. The kingdom is now irreparably damaged. He's allowing the worship of foreign gods. He's shown the most extraordinary greed. And he's done all of the things that God told him not to do. And this from the king who just a few years earlier was asking God for wisdom so that he could lead the people properly. Just a few years earlier, he built the temple, the symbol of God's presence with his people. And all of this happened so easily. He just drifted further and further away from God. So part of the lesson for us, I think, has got to be, don't be so foolish to think that this can't happen to you. Drifting away from God is not something that happens quickly happens slowly. It happens gradually. It happens one choice at a time that you make this decision that leads you down this path that with each step takes you further and further away from God. The Apostle Paul said this about understanding what the stories are in the Old Testament. He says, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. So how would you say your relationship with God was going? Would you say that your relationship was strong? How would you compare it to five years ago? Would there be any difference? Have things improved? Do you have a better relationship with God now than you did five years ago? Do you pray more? Do you read the Bible more? Are you more active in your Christian life now than you were sometime earlier? The danger of drifting away from God is there for all of us. So we need to make sure that we take those steps to make sure that that's not going to happen. Being here on Sunday is a great way to start. Being part of a Bible study group is also really helpful. 
meeting together with other people who are going to be able to encourage you in your faith. It's essential. But we also need to be exactly clear about where Solomon went wrong. With many of the mistakes that Solomon made, it's pretty unlikely that we're going to be making them. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, unlikely I'll be marrying 700 women. Can't see that happening. I've got a fantastic wife, don't need any more. And I've, I've never felt the temptation to import horses from Egypt. Never had the temptation to have a horse, actually. But I've got the same potential to be proud and I've got exactly the same potential to be greedy and I've got the same potential to chase after those things that will lead me away from God. Jesus had a lot to say about this. He says that you can't serve two masters. You're going to love one and hate the other. You can't serve both God and money, so you need to pick which one you're going to serve. But do you know the big mistake that Solomon made? Back in that passage in Deuteronomy, this is what it says. The king, when he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law. Probably the book of Deuteronomy, maybe the whole first five books of the Old Testament. He's to have his own personal copy of God's law taken from the priests who are the Levites. It is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees. Solomon was to have his own copy of God's word. He was to read it all the days of his life. He was to read it so that he would revere God, respect God, so that he would know God and so that he would live the way that God wanted him to live. And it ain't just kings of Israel who need to take God's word seriously. We need to read it so that we can revere God, so that we can respect God, so that we can know God, and so that we can live as faithful followers of Jesus. So if you want to know what God's like, if you want to know what he has done for you through his son, if you want to know how to respond to God in your life, then you need to hear what God's word says. We can so easily make the same mistake as Solomon, can't we? All we need to do is keep listening to what God's word says, to take it seriously, to know that it is God's word. Paul says this to Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's God's word that will actually teach us, rebuke us, correct us and train us in righteousness. And if we're serious about our relationship with God, then we'll want to guard against drifting away. Drifting away can happen in a whole variety of different ways. You can drift away and just end up with a Christianity that's kind of just really middle-class values rather than what God wants us to have. But we stay on track when we keep listening to what God's Word says. When we keep listening to it so that we can revere God. That's why we look at the Bible each Sunday here in church. That's why... You need to make sure that you're reading it. 
And that's why it's great to be a part of a Bible study group where you can discuss it with others. Or maybe just meeting with one other person and reading through the Bible with them. But if we're not listening to what God's Word says, then it doesn't teach us, it doesn't rebuke us, it doesn't correct us, it doesn't train us in righteousness. To be the people that God wants us to be, we need to listen to what God says in his word. Let's pray.